Mark chapter 9 is where we'll be. Mark chapter 9. I was going to preach from verse 1 to verse 13. Uh, I got too long, so I'll cut out those verses from 9 to 13. Maybe I'll do that next week. We'll take a look at it. But today we look primarily and exclusively at the transfiguration. Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Begin verse 1. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up by a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. There appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud. This is what the voice said. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Join me as we pray. <clears throat> Father, we pray in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, that you would help us. There are men and women that walked in and feel like they, they just don't have hope. Feel as if somehow they've just been overlaid with darkness, not sure of the next turn. Father, I pray that you would break through by your Spirit today. That the light of Christ would shine, that the joy of God would be present. That you'll help us, or we need, we, we confess that we need your help here today. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I was not a great student in high school. I did okay. I always felt like C was for, for Clint, so that was sort of my motto. <laughs> I went through college uh, about like that. I did what it took to stay in college and play football. And after college, though, I decided to get serious and did pretty well in seminary. But I never did love reading until after seminary. I had a little time on my hands and started reading. And found out I like biography and history. And so probably anywhere from 30 years ago, 25 to 30 years ago, started reading biographies and history. And in the 30 years that I have read, biographies and history books, the one biography that stands alone is written by William Manchester. It is the trilogy about Winston Churchill. You can find it, The Last Lion. The Last Lion is a good place to start if you want to jump into it. It's three volumes. It is magisterial in every way. Kyle and I were talking last week. He's actually going through it again. It's a book you will just love to read. And it made me really love Winston Churchill, the, the good and the bad about him. So I've read a bunch of books about Winston Churchill. So in 2017, one of my friends sent me a YouTube link, texted it to me, because there was a movie coming out called The Darkest Hour. I've now seen it probably 20 times. 
But that preview, when I saw, I watched, I would click on the and just click on it, just watch it over and over and over again because that preview let me know of this wonderful movie that was coming. What I just read to you is a preview. The Transfiguration, why is it there? It is a preview. Let's get the context. If we're expositional, let's get the context of what's going on in chapter 9. Up to this point, chapter 8 has gone up to the pinnacle. Chapter 8 tells us of the great confession. You remember the great confession where Peter says, you are the Christ, you're the son of the living God. After the great confession, Jesus then tells the disciples, finally, the son of man must be crucified. He's going to die and be raised again. So you have the great confession. You have Jesus telling them about his coming death. And then the third thing is at the end of chapter 8, what we just came out of, at the end of chapter 8, Jesus gives a radical call for discipleship. Remember the discipleship call to deny yourself, to take up your cross, to follow Christ. It is a radical thing. And if you're not careful, if you're not careful, being a Christian can, can sound almost like drudgery. So chapter 8 ends with deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow. Chapter 9 opens with this picture of the glory of Jesus. So I've been asking why all week. Why? why? Why is this passage here? Why the transfiguration? What does that mean for us? Here's what I think. If you'd like to write things down, here's what I'm convinced of. It's the glory the glory of Jesus, the glory of Jesus gives us what we need. All of us have walked in with different needs today. The needs that you have are met by the glory of Jesus. So here's what I want to do. I want to just go back to the passage. Since it's a narrative, it's a story, let me go through, point out a couple of things that we might have missed along the way. Then after reading through it again, I'll come back and try to make some applications for a sermon. Join me back there in chapter 9. The story opens up and he said to them, but it's in the middle of something that's happening. What is happening at the end of chapter 8, Jesus has given a great call for discipleship. And as he wraps it up in verse 38 of chapter 8, Jesus says, if you are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of you will the Son of Man be ashamed when Jesus comes again. So here's the eschatological coming of Jesus when he comes in the glory of God the Father, millions of angels. So take the chapters and verses away. Chapter 9 starts. And in the middle of that, he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some people standing here that will not taste death. That is a sort of a dramatic way of saying dying. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So it's a great promise. Chapter 8 is a call for discipleship. The end of chapter 8 says there is this coming kingdom. Chapter 9 verse 1 says there are a couple of you standing here, three to be exact, three, James, Peter, and John. There are three that are not going to die before they see a little taste of the kingdom. So with that having been said, verse 1 is the close of a week. We open up six days later in chapter 2. The crowds are gone six days later. Jesus takes three with him. 
These are three we've seen before. Jesus has the 12 disciples, like the team that follows him. Inside of that 12, there are three that he is especially close to. Peter is the one who can't keep his mouth closed. James and John are the sons of thunder. The three of them are close to Jesus. And verse 2 says that Jesus chose those three that are so close. And he walked with them by themselves, verse 2, up on a high mountain. This is not Mount Sinai where the law is given. This is probably Mount Hermon. This is uh, 9,000 feet. It's a, lo- it's a high mountain. Climb it up. It would take a long time. The text says they go up on a high mountain. Luke tells us they went up there to spend some time praying together. They've done this before. What has not happened before is at the end of verse 2, something happened. He was, see the word transfigured? It's the Greek word, metamorphosis. You've heard that in science class. I didn't pay enough attention to know that's where I heard it. It's just a Greek word that means change. That's all it means, that there is a dramatic change. You might see it back in the New Testament, in the Greek New Testament, over and over again. It will speak of coming from becoming someone that is not a Christian to becoming a Christian, metamorphosis. The way Mark has written it, he gets it from Peter. Peter tells him he just changed. I don't know. He changed. Verse 2. Verse 3 tells us the, the kind of change. So Peter's trying to describe it to Mark. If you hadn't been here in a while, Mark wrote this gospel. He probably got his information from Peter. So here's an eyewitness in verse 3. How did he change, Peter? Well, let's see. His clothes became radiant. They were intensely white, not not like a tablecloth, uh, not like a sheet of paper. I don't know how to describe it. It's whiter than anybody on earth could actually bleach. It's the whitest white I've ever seen, verse 3. It's radiant white. If you read Luke and Matthew, it makes it sound like what happened then is at night, so then it would really shock. If, if Moses came off the mountain and his face was glowing, he was showing the, the, he was reflecting the glory of God. What is happening here is that it's coming from within. There's a change in him. We're seeing the glory of Jesus in verse 3 and then in verse 4, something happens. Remember, there are four of them up on the mountain, Jesus with Peter and James and John. So there are four of them. Two more people show up in verse 4. Now there are six people. Notice who those two people are. It's Elijah. Peter says, all of a sudden, Elijah's there and Moses is there. Moses is the lawgiver. Elijah is the great preacher of the law. The two of them together, would, they would symbolize all of the Old Testament. They've come there. And it's interesting to me, verse 4, I'd like to know more. I wish Mark gave us more information. Mark says in verse 4, they were talking with Jesus. Wouldn't you like to hear that conversation? What could they possibly be saying to Jesus? Well, Luke tells us. Luke gives a little further. Luke says they were discussing, the Greek word is exit. They were discussing the departure of Jesus. Which is interesting if you think about Moses, how he died, or you think about Elijah, how he was taken away. Now, those two men are there with Jesus talking about his exit. They're having a conversation. They're interrupted. Verse 5. Now, what kind of gall does it take? All right, he's already been changed. He's glowing. Jesus is, there's something happened to him. Now Moses, who gave us the law, is here. Elijah, the greatest prophet that ever lived, is here. They're having a conversation. 
and Peter. It's going to be one of my points, Danny. Peter. Peter said to Jesus, look at the word rabbi. You're seeing him in a new light. And, and you're, so Peter says, rabbi, it's good that we're here. So he says, you know what, why don't we make three little tents? One for Moses, one for Elijah, one for you, three tabernacles. Some have said that he did this because he wanted to stay up there on the mountain. Some have said he wanted to keep what he had there. I, don't, I think he just is talking. Let me tell you why, because verse 6. Verse 6, Peter admits it. That's the good thing about Peter. He is a loud mouth, he runs his mouth, but he knows it. And so when he's rebuked, he receives, you know what, you're right, I'll, I'll talk too much. Verse 6, it tells us that he's, he's going on like this. Verse 6 says, because he was so afraid. He didn't want to say. There's some of us, when we get, when we get afraid, we get scared, uh, we, we stop talking, frightened to speak. On the other hand, there's some of us that when we get nervous and maybe afraid of the situation, we talk more than we normally do. And this is Peter, just... The text says that he, he's afraid, so he's running off at the mouth. Just letting his mouth go in verse 6. Verse 7, the picture gets even more dramatic. Verse 7 says, now a cloud, and that would be a good word study for the Old Testament. You can see where cloud is mentioned, what, does it, what happens there. A cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came from the cloud. They've heard this before. God speaks, and he says, this is my son, listen to him. And so, of course, Peter is quiet at that point. If you read it over in the other Gospels, Matthew and Luke, you find out that it was probably night. They have fallen to the ground, most likely are not looking anymore, heads covered. It seems to be what happens Every time there is this kind of theophany, this where God shows up. And then it's a dramatic change in verse 8. And suddenly, all of that is gone. Looking around now, suddenly they no longer see anyone with them but Jesus only. Jesus only. Okay, let's back up. What do we do with the transfiguration? Why, why is it here? What does it help in our needs? Let me give you a couple of things to think through. Here's the first one, number one. <clears throat> what do we need? We absolutely need hope. We need hope. You need hope. Man, if we could just have one little sliver of hope, one little bit that's going to carry us through. We're, we're built so that we need hope. At the end of chapter 8, in verse 38, when Jesus is talking about discipleship and his coming, when he comes in the glory of his Father with all of the angels, in chapter 9, it opens up. Chapter 9 is a picture of glory. Jesus says, there are some of you right here, James and Peter and John, that are standing here. You're going to have a little taste. It's a preview. If all you have in cha is chapter 36, I'm sorry, in chapter 8, verses 36, 37, and 38, if all you have are these calls for discipline, to take up your cross, to deny yourself, 
If that's all you hear, then you seem to think Christianity is drudgery. And Jesus, chapter 9, he says, there are three of you. I want you to have a little taste. James and John and Peter. And that little taste of the glory of Jesus is going to be enough to make Peter become a martyr. John exiled on Patmos. It's going to make them live their lives. J James and John and Peter, they were with him when Jairus' daughter was healed. They, they will be with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. They've been so close to Jesus. They are going to see on the mountain of transfiguration the pure glory of of Jesus. They're going to see the glory of God that has not been seen since Adam and Eve before sin entered the world. In verse 1, Jesus lets them know you're going to get a little preview of the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God can be described in several ways. What it cannot be described is without Jesus. And the transfiguration would be a preview. And, and for, these three, for these three men, it would provide tremendous hope to walk through life for the next several years. There are men and women sitting here today, sitting right here. And if you could just find a little bit of hope. If you could see the, the glory of Jesus just because you need that hope. If you can see that Jesus, that Jesus is the kingdom of God, that Jesus is the glory of God, that, that Jesus is the law of God, that, that Jesus is the wisdom of God, that given to you Jesus is the Son of God who lived perfectly, died on the cross, God raised him from the dead, and Jesus is the hope of God. And it's something God gives us these, uh, these, these small kindnesses. Small kindnesses. Today we'll have a baby dedication. It's a small kindness of the Lord and families are here. You can rejoice and we capture it with pictures. It's a, it's a kindness. Those small kindnesses are given to us to encourage our hearts. I'm reading in 1 Samuel right now, my devotional life, and I'm David and Jonathan. And uh, one of the things that Jonathan ends up doing, David's on the run, to come to him, to, just to talk to him, to encourage him. I thought, well, what, a, what a good thing, a friend, is a small kindness that God gives us. God gives us those things so that we might know that what you're walking through is not happening to you in vain. As believers, we... Man, if we can just have a little hope. And that's what, that's what the gospel is. It's hope. We have a hope in Jesus Christ. If you are a sinner, Jesus lived perfectly. You take his righteousness. If you have offended God, the wrath of God went on Jesus. You trust in him. If you're worried about dying, Jesus Christ died. God raised him from the dead as a first fruits. He has ascended into heaven. And the promise is you in Christ will too. There's a, there's a hope that resides in the believer that takes you through. It is sustain, the sustaining power of, of God given to us in Jesus, the reminder that there is a world that is beyond us, that's in Christ, that, that this world is not all there is. We look at the, uh, 
We look at the transfiguration. Why is this story here? It is here for you, you, that you need hope. Let me give you something else I think we need. Why is it here? Uh, number two, we, we need reminders. We need reminders. If you have a calendar, if you have a phone, you need reminders. My phone, the alarm, uh, I set several alarms on a Sunday morning on the same phone. I don't know if it makes a difference or not. makes me feel better about going to bed Saturday night. Every preacher's panic would be to wake up late on a Sunday morning. Reminders. We have reminders. We need reminders. I think there are reminders in verses 2 and 3. Let me show it to you in chapter 9. <clears throat> After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. I mean, Paul's there. Peter, James, and John. Those three men would be partners. There's fellowship. There are friends. There's accountability. Why, why does God give us the church? Why do we have one another? Why does he say that iron sharpens iron because they're clanking? Why does he bring us in a, in a congregation? Why is it not in isolation? Because we, we have fellowship and accountability. Why is there a, a certain warmth that comes to the body of Christ when we gather together in a church? The building is not the church. You are the church when you gather together. We come together because God created us like that. And out of that group, there is an inner circle that becomes your accountability, men or women that know you better than anybody. That would be Peter and James and John. Also, the text says in verse 2 and 3 that they, um, they go up on the mountain by themselves. There is a sense where there is a, a togetherness. They are set aside. Jesus took them there. Luke says they went up there to pray. They went up there to be alone with Christ. If you wanted to press this a little further, you might even say it's a retreat. There's a, there's a reason we say it's a mountaintop experience coming down off the mountain. And the text says they went up there in chapter 2, at the, I mean in verse 2, at the end of verse 2, the word there is the metamorphosis word that he's transfigured, that he's changed. That he is holy and completely different. And those three men see him in a way they never have before. They are being reminded who this is. It's good for us to be reminded that we don't become so familiar with Christ. They're reminded, they're reminded of his, uh, verse 3, of his purity. Uh, Peter can't describe, and Mark doesn't help him much. Uh, how do I tell you how white, how white is clothes? So white, nobody can bleach him that white, so pure. We get reminded of his purity. We get reminded of, of our need to worship and holiness, of his holiness. It's good for the church to be reminded. It's good for you to be reminded of that. It's good for you to, to, to know how good worship is for your own soul. It's good to be reminded that the Bible tells us the story of God, that our God is a happy God. This picture is, is filled with sunlight and, and joy. It reminds us that's where our strength comes from. But there is certainly conviction of sin, and we turn from that sin. When you run to the cross of Jesus, there's this wonderful, happy forgiveness. It's good to be reminded that forgiveness has been given to you, and forgiveness is, is to be extended. It's good to be reminded of God's grace to you in Jesus, so that you might then extend grace to other people that offend you. It's good to be reminded of grace received and Grace given. We, we need reminders. Let me give you something else I think we need from this passage. This would be the third thing. Number three, 
you'll find in verse 4, I would say here we need depth. We need depth. We need to grow deep in our faith. We live in a, an adulterous and sinful generation. An adulterous and sinful gener- generation that, that tends to move us without even knowing it sometimes. Sometimes it's imperceptible and, and our values change. We don't even realize it because things are moving so swiftly, we just get pulled. And, and, and with depth, if, you can, if you're shallow, you float with the river of this world. If, if you're deep, you have dr- driven a pylon into the bedrock of the river. And the river goes past you. And you stay there. What we need is depth. I'm sure I get that in verse 4. There are two men that show up. Elijah and Moses. Elijah and Moses. Moses is the law of God. Elijah is the great preacher of the law. Here is the law and the prophets symbolized in Moses and Elijah with Jesus. Both of them, the, the, the law and the prophets, Pointing to Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. There's lots of pictures here in the transfiguration. There's no lawgiver like Moses. There's no, there's no prophet like Elijah. And Jesus in the middle as the fulfillment. It's interesting. Moses and Elijah, uh, they both met with God on Mount Sinai. That's a mountain of the law of God. Here Jesus meets with those two on a different mountain. This is a gospel mountain. This is a mountain that says the law, yes, points us to the perfection of God that we fall short of, and Jesus is the answer to that. What's most interesting to me in verse 11 is that they're talking. Man, I want to, what are they saying? I mean, verse 4, they're talking. Verse 4, they're talking. What, What are they saying? I mean, don't you want to hear why did Peter interrupt the conversation? I want to hear what, they, what are they saying. And Luke tells us what they were saying. Luke says that they were talking to Jesus about his exit, about his departure. Which is interesting. I mean, you have lots of questions. You start thinking about this. Oh, you think about how Moses died. Moses went up on the mountain and God let him see into the promised land. And he died there and God buried Moses. That's how it ends. Elijah is more bizarre. Elijah, he gets swept up, chariots of fire. It's even more bizarre. Those two in the Old Testament have made these sort of spectacular exits. Now they are here talking to Jesus, Luke says, about his exit. It's going to be something. And Luke says they're talking about this departure. And I started thinking about Moses, who's the great Moses, the great emancipator, right? Moses is used by God to lead God's people out of the slavery that was in Egypt. Elijah, the great proclaimer of the power of God. And here is Jesus, Jesus who is the greater Moses, Jesus who is the truer Elijah, Jesus who through his atoning death on the cross, through his resurrection from the dead, he will lead up the great second exodus from the enslavement of sin and death and Satan. His departure will be the one that means the most. If Moses, if Moses reflected the glory of God, Jesus is the glory of God. If Elijah preached, 
God's glory. Jesus brings God's glory. And the, the, the transfiguration, why is it here? The transfiguration is a preview. It's a preview of future glory. Some standing here see the kingdom before they die. Look, we need hope. We need the hope of Christ to carry us through, the hope of the perfect life, the atoning death, the resurrection of Jesus. We need reminders. That's what God gives us in his kindness, reminders. We, we, need, we need depth. We need to grow in what it is that we actually believe. Let me give you a fourth one. Number four, we need to be quiet. Yep, that's right. We need to be quiet. I, I, I felt conviction when I read verses 5 and 6. Just because just, there's this weird familiarity right there in verses 5 and 6. There's a transfiguration that's going on in verse, at the end of verse 2. And at the, verses 5 and 6, something happens. Let me show it to you. <clears throat> Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. A couple of things. Lots to point out here. I'll just give you a couple. Calling Jesus Rabbi shows a total failure on Peter's part to grasp who this is, which is odd because Peter made the great confession, you're the, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Now he's on the mountain of transfiguration. He's actually seeing it with his own eyes and he diminishes. He, there is a misunderstanding of the significance of the situation. Sometimes we, we don't need to feel the, we don't need to feel the air noise. When you see the glory and you, you, you realize this is something special. Verse 6 is nervous talk. It's just nervous talk. Sometimes it's good for us just to, 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 to fill the space with quiet. I'm sure where I get that. Come down to verse 7. There's the fifth thing. Number 5. We need to listen, to listen. That's what God says in verse 7. Now notice where it comes from. It's interesting to me, the cloud, and a cloud overshadowed them. It's all throughout the Old Testament. When a cloud is there, God is there. Uh, if you go and read the Exodus, when Moses led the people out of Egypt, it was a fire at night. It was a cloud by day. Exodus 33, when Moses stands on the mountain and asks to see God's glory, there's a cloud the end of Exodus, when the tabernacle was built, the cloud descended with the glory of God. When Solomon dedicated his temple, the cloud descended and the priest couldn't work in there. Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah says, In the, in the year the king Uzziah died I, saw the, died, I saw the Lord sitting high and lifted up in the temple. And as he saw it, the cloud it's the glory of God, the presence of God. And out of, that, out of that presence came a voice. And that voice says, listen. 
Stop talking. You listen to him. What do we listen to Christ? We listen to him about the gospel. We listen that, maybe you need to listen to this. The God who is holy made you in his image, and the image of God in you has been disfigured by your own sin. That sin has separated you, it has hurt your soul, and, and kept you from God, but it doesn't have to be like that. The gospel is that Jesus Christ lived in a way you can't, never could. He, he earned righteousness for you, for you, your righteousness. And at the cross, he takes the wrath of God. If you feel the condemnation, that, that's what you should feel, condemned by God outside of Christ. That condemnation, though, goes on Christ. This is the gospel. The gospel is that God the Father killed his own son in your place and gives you the inheritance he earned. If you'll turn and believe that, you see. So, so we, we listen to him for the gospel. We listen when, he's, when he sanctifies us and teaches us and walks us through things. We listen to him. We listen when he provides. There's this constant provision God provides for you. Hey, listen, you need to listen that, that if you're in Christ, he forgives you. There's nothing more beautiful than receiving forgiveness. Second to that is, is giving forgiveness. See, it's here, the, the transfiguration is here to, to show us future glory so we live in this adulterous generation. There, there, there's a reminder, there's a coming age when the Son of Man will return with the glory of His Father and all of the angels. But until then, verse 8, I'll give you the last one. Number 8, uh, verse 8, we need, to focus, we need to focus on Jesus. I want you to focus your attention on Jesus. That's what happens in verse 8. When everything falls away, Moses is gone, Elijah is gone, verse 8, the way it's written it's, it's, it's there to call our attention. Don't you love how it ends that no matter, no matter what, there is a hope that awaits us in Christ. This passage reminds us that, that Jesus, who is the sole bearer, the sole carrier of God's grace and love and forgiveness, a grace and love and forgiveness that is finally realized at the cross and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus himself. Jesus himself is the tabernacle. He's the new tabernacle of God's glory. All other pictures and visions and revelations that are given through the Bible point us to Christ. And no matter what, no matter what you have been through or going through, Jesus is there, and in him there is a glory that awaits us. All of that to say, the glory of Jesus gives us what we need. With that in mind, would you join me this morning with your heads bowed as we go to the Lord in a moment of commitment and prayer. With your heads bowed this morning, if you'd like to, to pray with someone or for someone, when we sing, we'd invite you to come forward here. Our pastors are here. If you'd like to meet with one of them, talk. It may be that you are more comfortable with talking to one of us after church. We're, we're in the lobby. Glad to talk to any of you about what it means to put your hope. Like, I want you to live with hope, to put your hope 
in the living God and his son Jesus who's been given for you. Join me as we pray, and then we'll continue to worship and sing. Father, thank you for the grace you've given us in Jesus. We thank you for the love that has been shown. God, thank you for being present. We thank you for the picture of future glory. We pray that the picture of future glory would help us to walk through what we walk through even now. We commit this time to you, this worship to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.